In 2014, the industry finally came up with a definition for the term microservice architecture, which is a particular way of designing software applications as suites of independently deployable software. The people who came up with this definition back then thought that the style could become the future of enterprise software. Fast forward to today, and we quickly realized that they were right. Microservices are now seemingly everywhere. In fact, an O'Reilly report in 2020 found that several organizations have begun migrating from monolithic systems, applications, and architectures to microservices, and many more are looking to begin that transition. In this episode of Cocktails, we talked to one of the two people who came up with the definition of microservices. We discuss its evolution throughout the years, how organizations can respond to the complexity of its architecture style, choosing between REST and gRPC, and the future of the industry with microservices. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. All right, joining me as always is none other than Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. Good to have you on. Hi, Thank you. All right. And our guest for today is a software architect and director at ThoughtWorks based in the UK. As a member of the ThoughtWorks Technical Advisory Board, the group that creates the technology radar, he contributes to industry adoption of open source and other tools, techniques, platforms, and languages. He's an internationally recognized expert on software architecture and design and on its intersection with organizational design and lean product development. Most importantly, he also defined the microservices architecture style back in 2014, which we'll be talking about today. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us for a round of cocktails is James Lewis. James, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. How are things? Really good. It's it's an honor to be invited. So thank you very much for the for the invite. Yeah, you find me you find me in a very rainy London or near London, uh, sitting in my shed at the bottom of the garden, which was my uh, my lock my first lockdown project during the pandemic. So. I converted my office into a shed, so I'm now in mission control there. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's been—I mean, it, it's like like everyone. It's been very, very strange. You know, a lot of my job has been—oh, I, I wouldn't say uh, has gone, but a lot of my job was involved travel to conferences and public speaking. And you yeah. know, I've, I've been really an evangelist for ThoughtWorks over the over the last few years, and all that sort of disappeared really. So it's really great to actually be invited onto things like podcasts where we can talk about these things because i think everyone misses it don't they but yeah thanks thanks for asking and i like your party lights too in your shed (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's jump right in uh so together with martin fowler you were responsible for coming up with the concept of microservices so in the past seven years since its inception have you seen the use of the term and the concept evolve from what it initially was um yeah i mean the short answer is yes um, Martin Fowler, and but I think I think I think actually that's not so bad, right? So naturally things evolve, and I'll, I'll come to I'll come to that in a second. But there's I guess there's two types of evolution in, in a sense. There's there's building on what we have in the past. You know, there's this idea of you have scientific revolutions, and then um, you gradually build on those ideas until you have another revolution, um, and that's that's kind of fine. But then there's another type of evolution, which is should we say like a kind of bad type of evolution? Martin Fowler 
talks about this as semantic diffusion, where the term or the thing starts stops meaning what it originally meant mm-hmm. and starts to mean something else. So you could talk about, um, for a long time, agile, you could talk about the, the, the phrase agile being semantically diffused, where it started to me to be synonymous with scrum and sprints and commitments and this kind of stuff, which actually that's not what agile is about at all. Um, so, I mean, with, with microservices, yeah, absolutely. I think things have changed, but I think it's been a good change. I think it's, I think things have evolved in a, in a, in a good way. And the reason I say that is because, you know, we're all really looking back at microservices and that, that definition, I think it was, it was almost like a, like a meta paper for, like a scientific, you know, for research in the sense that it was gathering a whole lot of good things that people were doing at the time. You know, it's almost a bit like XP. It's like you take all the practices and you turn it all up to 11 in extreme programming. That's the, you know, the old joke about that. Um, and I think microservices is the same. If you look at the individual components, they were all there around, you know, and had been and been built on for a number of years. So think, I guess you could, you could pick up things like the products over projects and, organized around business capabilities those are the principles or characteristics and you can see their origin in things like domain driven design you know you can see the 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 origin in 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 concerning ourselves with the business aspects of of the problem we're trying to solve as opposed to like the the layered technical aspects or whatever um or if you look at things like you know endpoints in the smarts in the endpoints and not in the pipes then you know that that's an evolution of how we'd sort of come to view RESTful or web integration as almost the holy grail of, of decoupling in a sense and then you know, the, the, the best type of, of integration uh, over, um, over uh, say, you know, enterprise service buses or smarts in, in, in your infrastructure where, you know, things tend to uh, end up being, uh, well, you end up with stuff smeared everywhere so it's not very cohesive and you end up with, you know, with tight coupling uh, 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 all across the place so so i think it's you know it was an evolution of these ideas you could say it's an evolution of jim weber's um gorilla soa which you know, he, if you haven't seen this there's a great talk he did with martin fowler um some some time well years ago now at qcon i think it was a keynote called does my bus look big in this uh about his idea of gorilla soa which is you know it was the antithesis of the big bang will you know will will go away and design your service oriented architecture and then come back three years later and you know it'll all be done you know, which never never worked never happened um and uh yeah and so the gorilla soa idea was to do was to build out things in slices based on value so i think it's it's all been an evolution really and it's all based on these these giants that came before going back four years to unix in, in, in essence so um I, I don't know if you've got any 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 thoughts about that as well but that's kind of how i see the evolution it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it, we, we talked about that interpretation of Agile just a couple of podcasts ago and in terms of the, the meaning of Agile has changed. It, 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 the interpretation of what Agile means now is so broad, it's probably diffused from its original concept. So you said microservices is being interpreted in a similar sort of way. How, how, how are people using the terminology which wasn't really a, a, a envisaged by, by you? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, just a, a sidebar on, on Agile. I mean, Agile for me, I can tell you, I mean, I've been working for ThoughtWorks now 15 years, and I was doing XP before ThoughtWorks. Um, before I joined ThoughtWorks, I've been working in an Agile manner for a long, long time. And all Agile means 
for me is uh is, is three things it's small batch sizes fast feedback and, and discipline and if you do those if you've got those three things that's essentially agile for me um but in terms of in terms of in terms of microservices yeah i mean well i i think the original the spirit if you like of microservices was around um it wasn't so much a microservices have to look like x it was more um the, the spirit of a microservices architecture is to take good architectural practice and then uh, essentially take it to the extreme with a set of constraints, these principles guiding you. Um, so originally there were things like, you know, um, it's a, very much like the 12 factor app, apps from Heroku. Um, those, those constraints and principles, they came out practically the same time as we were doing the first, um, first set of sort of microservices uh, architectures in ThoughtWorks. And, and Netflix was doing it and, and, and so on in the Guardian and that. Um, and, and, and that those the, the sort of spirit of microservices was to was to was to well was to build well architected, uh, evolve well architected systems um, based on these small components where you know where you took the idea of single responsibility principle almost like to to, uh, to extremists right so you know we, we talk about turtles all the way up and down you know so a, a method in object oriented languages a method has a single purpose single responsibility a class has a single responsibility a namespace has a single responsibility you know so a package and then you know a, a library or, or an application has a single responsibility and then you you, you sort of scale those up at, at, to be until you are at the, the, the level of a business capability, which might be represented by a number of microservices interacting. But the key thing is, it, it was that you know you had these these small things that were well that were well designed mm -hmm. um, using using standard patterns, using standard integration patterns. I think what it's come to me now, in, in some senses, it's crystallized more. It's it's more. Um, it's more of a firm definition. People tend to think of microservices in a number of ways. They tend to think of them as noun services. You know, I'm going to have a, uh, I don't know, an order service or a product service or a user service, these kinds of things. And they're connected together in a, in a DAG, in a, you know, directed equivalent graph. Um, and that's that's actually the sort of, if you look at this, sort of squint a bit and look at what Netflix used to do, it was a little bit like that. Not quite, mm -hmm. wasn't quite nouns, but they had this this graph of stuff where one, one thing would call another, which would call another, which would call another. And that's fine. And, you know, you can do that as long as you have, as long as you, you put in place the appropriate, um, you know, patterns to, to, to solve for um, availability, right, and reliability. Because the problem with with deep call chains is the service at the top, the availability is limited by the the, the product of, of all its other calls. Um, mm. So if you, you know, if I, this, I think this is called the multiplicative multiplicative effect of downtime. If you've got one service at the bottom, um, or if you've got one service calls five other services, that its availability is limited by the sum, the product of the availability of the other services. So that's that's why you end up with all these circuit breakers and all this kind of reliability stuff built in. It's fine. The noun, noun patterns are fine to a point. The problem with noun, noun services is they tend to be, um, they, they tend to mean that you have, that, that change trickles through more than one of them. So when you want to make a change to something, to a business process, you tend to have to make a change to the user service and the product service and the catalog service. Whereas if you have something like, you know, product management as a service, like a capability sort of thing and capabilities and API, you can limit the blast radius of change to the capability. Uh, and that's, that's, 
that's why there's a great blog by Michael Nygaard, you know, the, the author of a fantastic release it. Um, if you can look it up, I think it's about verb services. So you should you should be you know trying to think of your services in terms of doing stuff as opposed to just returning you know CRUD operations. They should they should have behavior. And so that's why we favor services with things like management in the title, order management, that kind of stuff, rather than order should be everything to do with orders, not just calling and getting an order from a database. So I think things have changed. Things have crystallized in a sense, as I say. Uh, and people, when, when, you know, when, when they talk about microservices, they tend to mean that kind of, uh, that DAG type. Netflix, of course, changed. They've, I believe they've still, they, they, they sort of inverted the graph, if you like. So they, they went to reactive, a reactive um, pattern um, where they're, they're sort of um, streaming results rather than doing you know, request response. Um, from their services, which is which is slightly this is where RX Java came from. You know, the port of RX from from C Sharp was their implementation of that. Um, but there are other patterns. I mean, this is almost onto um, Stefan Tilkoff's um, thoughts around the different sort of styles of microservice itself. So you've got you know this is the sort of he talks about type two two um, A if you like, which is Netflix or Amazon, the sort of DAG of of, of hundreds of connected services. Um, or type 2B, which is when you invert it, as I say, you turn the arrows the other way up on the diagram and you get the RX version of it. Um, but there's also, you know, there's also a type of service, uh, a type of microservices architecture or, or sort of category of architectures, which are almost purely func functional and based on messaging or, or uh, you know, sort of events, event-driven architectures. Mm. And this is this was sort of characterized early on by a guy called Fred George, who's also ex-ThoughtWorks. It's no surprise a lot of these people came from ThoughtWorks, actually. Um, but he talked about this, like, you know, he, he was building applications of very, very, very simple functional microservices that would functional in the sense that they would take an input and produce you an output, you know, and it was repeatable like a mathematical function in functional, functional programming functional. Um, and they would just be sitting listening to a bus. And when they, when they received a message, they would do some stuff and then they would produce another message in response. And it was this, this sort of set of services that were, that were connected, um, but I mean, there, there are other styles. I mean, the, the other two I would sort of mention um, are Stefan Tilkoff himself. He talks about self-contained systems. So there's a great, he's got a great, great site around self-contained systems. It's a really nice idea where you have a single runtime, which contains everything you need to do to do a particular slice through your, through your application, not separated out into individual services. I'm probably doing that a disservice, uh, but how can I have a look at Stefan's work? And then there's what I call just use your head. I normally swear a bit more, use your, head because the original intent of microservices as i said at the start of this was to build stuff in a well-architected way deploying you know sensible patterns but then constraining yourself around things like running you know don't don't scale via threads scale via processes which is one of the heroku 12 factor app you know, constraints so has it changed yes it's crystallized but at the same time you know that that's okay that's that's fine you know you can still just use your head so when you say um expanding from a noun-based service to a verb service. Does that imply that the domain-limited scope of a service is now uh, expanded? You're expanding the scope of the service. Like you said, it's no longer an order service, it's an order management service. It's doing more. Is that what you're saying? It's, oh, it's super hard, right? Because um, is the order management is is potentially a capability, right? So, so you have a, you have a capability that you need to offer to to the enterprise. Order management sounds like one of those capabilities. Now, is that a single service? Well, uh, maybe. 
Uh, and actually, from the outside, you probably shouldn't care. What you should see is an API, which is your representation that you see of the order management capability. Now, internally, the team that's building that, that capability, you know, whether they choose to decompose that into a set of other, into a set of services, um, you know, many services, or whether they choose to represent that as a single service with maybe multiple endpoints, I guess that's a choice for the team themselves and applying what I said about using the appropriate design patterns, architectural patterns um, to, to make that decision. I'll give you a good example of that. I did a talk a long time ago now, 2012, 11, something like that, at QCon San Francisco. Uh, it was called Java the Unix Way, and it was the first time I started talking about, about these concepts publicly. Um, we've been talking internally, but I haven't spoken publicly. And in that, we have this we have this sort of user management uh, capability that I talked about and we were building. And that, from the outside, it looked like a, set of, a series of endpoints where you could poke it with user detail, or you could request it to create a user for you. Um, and it it would or wouldn't, depending on whether you've given it a well well formed you know, user request or whatever it was, it would it would allow you to query it for users and do various things like that for users, create them, delete them, you know, change account details, all that sort of stuff. But internally, even though it had these very well defined APIs, uh, and they, you know, it was actually Atom was the was the domain application protocol we used. But internally, it was represented by well, internally it was composed of a fronting service which accepted a request uh, and then stored it off to the side for safekeeping. Um, so it validated it, stored it off to the side, and then said, right, your request is in process, and then and then sort of. Uh, announced that on an, on an internal queue. We then had competing consumers in separate processes that were reading messages off the queue as fast as they could and creating users uh, in the back-end store, essentially. Um, so it was internally, it was sort of one, two, three, or however many, three types, three, three different services. Externally, it was one, it looked like one thing, it was one API. Um, and and we, we, we used the three services internally uh, to, to provide, to well, to solve for um, the cross-functional re requirements which we had, which was very spiky uh, traffic. So we'd have really high load overnight and then CRUD operations during the day. So batch overnight, CRUD during the day. And that, that, I guess that's an example where, where from the outside, it's a capability, you don't really care, but the team, the people inside that, you know, had to solve for the requirements they had. And to do that, they applied standard standard design pattern, which would be competing consumer in the, in the sort of enterprise integration pattern sense. Um, so I don't know if that, that helps to sort of clarify maybe a bit what I mean about around around the different types. It's not different types; it's different. It, it, things change depending on where you're standing, right? It's like it's like relativity in a sense. And, and it all sounds so simple and obvious and, and logical. But <laughs> when, when you're breaking down, like from you know a monolithic architecture to a microservice architecture, you end up maintaining uh, potentially dozens or hundreds of applications as opposed to one and how and like in, as you said like that might be comprised of a few front-facing apis or dozens of front-facing apis with with lots of back-end services microservices behind those doing you know, very specific functions um with different architectural styles potentially behind them you know some event driven or, or, or whatever um, it starts to become complex uh so how, how do you how do you so, recommend organizations manage this complexity of re-architecting monolithic ap applications to a microservice-based application architecture? Uh, I guess the glib answer is carefully. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, 
I think the mistake I think the mistake people make is is by is trying to look at it too much in the in the round. In essence, right? Because depending on where you're standing, yes, things can look really, really complex. If you just look at the individual, it's a bit like looking at the night sky, right? Um, you look at the night sky, you see all these stars, and it looks like there's lots and lots and lots and lots of stars up there, and there are. But actually, if you start to think of those stars in constellations, there's fewer constellations out there, right? And I think that, like the service landscaping of large enterprise is sort of similar to that. If you just look in the round, if you look at all the stars, if you look at all the services, and you, my God, I've got 2,000 of these things. Hmm. Yes, that's that's really complex. You and these things are event driven, and these things are this, and these things are that. However, if you if you if you if you consider them as as groups of things instead, and this is the whole um, how we how we group them together into into business capabilities, you know, and then organize your teams around that. The people inside those capabilities, they don't need to see the whole night sky. They just need to be concerned with their, you know, their their, their solar system, if you like. You know, they're, they're, I'm just pu- I'm pushing this metaphor too far now. I've never used. Before, but hey, it sounds, sounds like it's, right, you're, you're on a roll there. Run with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it's, I mean, but, but that's that's really the you know that that that's really I think the, the trick. And I think if you're used to, as a say, as a, as a as an architect in a large organization or an enterprise architect, you're used to having this overview. And I think that's you know that 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 that's still necessary. But I think I, I think the complexity can be managed by pushing these things into these smaller constructs and having the teams worry about them themselves um, and worry about producing you know, the right APIs and then that and that kind of thing. I think there was the other question in there about how do you, you know, how do you sort of migrate or you know, should you migrate in or, or how do you how do you how do you migrate from a monolith? Now, I mean the question I always ask is why? Why do you want to migrate your monolith? You know, um, and you know, there are there are multiple reasons, valid reasons why you might want to do that. Um, I, I could think of a few off the top of my head. Maybe it's it's old, right? The, your license is running out. The license is too expensive. You need to replace it with something else, and therefore you're going to do them. You're going to migrate to microservices at the same time. Um, you you you're a startup or a scale up. Another might be another reason, and you know Twitter. Is a great example of this. Fail whale starts happening more and more because you become really successful, um, and you need to do something. You need to scale for for because reasons. You know, it might be availability. You're you're not available enough, and you you've become a mission critical resource. You need to do something. You know, you need you need to, and you you were built in a particular way that doesn't encourage um, scaling. Um, so there are there are valid reasons and valid business reasons to do these things, but but I don't think it should be. As you, you know, the implication, David, is that you shouldn't undertake this lightly. You know, which is really, I think, where you, well, hopefully, where you were pointing, you're prodding me to, to go yeah. because you, you, shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be undertaken lightly. There is a great book, obviously, out there by Sam Newman, who's a great friend and, and former colleague, called uh, Monolith to Microservices, I believe, um, which is and it's an excellent, it's it's really excellent. Actually, he's we spent a lot of time working together, and I I fully endorse everything that comes out of Sam's mouth, more or less. <laughs> There's some stuff about around board games I'm not so sure about, but you know, um, and, he, and he's got a, he's got a weird taste in Lego. He tends to go for the architecture sets, and no, not, not sure about that. But apart from that, you know, go and look up Sam's stuff. There is also some stuff we're working on. Um, actually, I'm working on with Martin at the moment around how you find seams in in legacy software. So and the patterns that you can then apply to um, to gradually move away from legacy. But it's you know it's like everything else. You apply standard patterns. You you look for things generally around business seams. Um, 
and depending on the on the on the on the the underlying monolith of what the infrastructure and what that looks like, you've then got various technical patterns that you can apply. Great example being my friends at BBVA who are awesome engineers and they've they've managed to migrate part of their well global payment processing away from them from their mainframe, which is you know that this is their core banking platform. Now this is I mean this is the holy grail of many of the big banks at the moment is to do away with their mainframes and they're on they're on their journey and they've they've managed it and one of the things they they've been really great at is identifying the chunks and how to move those chunks off um and one of the one of the nice patterns i've heard um what we've used as well is treating things like mainframes as an event sourced or event driven architecture because if you squint it's all about reading and writing batch files and if you squint to the batch file it's just a list of transactions right so if you can sort of just pop batch files into the right place you know produce them and consume them you can actually isolate whole parts of the mainframe safely often um so you know there, there are different techniques you can apply but i think the main question is why do you have a valid business case and because it's cool it's not a valid business case yeah, and in, I mean, don't get me wrong, like as a company, we facilitate Microsoft services architectures, you know, that's part of what we do, but we also enable integration of monoliths as well. So, or SaaS-based applications or whatever and automating workflows. But um, it's interesting because uh, often starting with a monolith, if it's architected well, that it can be broken down into microservices in the future, is perhaps easier and more maintainable for a small small team. Uh, you mentioned some valid reasons for migrating away from, some companies may migrate away from the monolith, but I think also you have the issue where it gets so big, that code base gets so big and so unmanageable and the team has changed several times since the original code base was written, it gets to the point where you don't want to touch it because you're too afraid to touch it. You don't know, you don't understand, you know, you don't want to touch it in case the implications of touching it, right? Yeah. And so, but if a, if a monolith is actually well architected in the first place, so that it can be broken down into individual services if and when it needs to be, then that's perhaps not a bad starting point for some businesses. It depends on the use case. And if you, like you say, if, you, if you're just looking at the, 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 uh, migrating an existing monolith, there's a whole multitude of reasons why you, why you may want to do that. Uh, but you you want to have a reason, like you say. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, it's um, about to tell a story, funny story. I think it's funny. It's quite tragic, really. But one of those um, examples you gave me, which is the it's become you know, a code base that isn't well factored. It's a monolith and it's become just unmanageable. And it was a large financial institution who shall remain nameless. And uh, they asked us, you know, what was the best course forward looking at the code base that you tried to. Uh, to change it and becoming what was impossible. So we ran some staffing analysis. And I said, well, I've got some good news for you. Um, your code base is cohesive, except the problem is it's all one and a half million lines of code that's cohesive. So you couldn't touch anything without something else breaking. Um, yeah. this, I, was, I was telling uh, Dan North about this. And because uh, they also, we found a class with who's you know, using static analysis tooling. We were looking at things like cyclomatic complexity and this kind of thing. And we found one class that has a method with 60 levels of nested if else, which is quite, quite entertaining. Um, and what, which led, led Dan North to tell me the old joke, which is there's no correct level of, of nested if statement, right? Because if you've got one, you can always add another, that's fine. But if you've got 60, what else are you going to do? You've got no choice. You have to add it up, you can't refactor it. So, no, I, I agree. I mean, you know, and there are there are those those sort of um, pathological cases where code bases get so, so old, so unmanageable that the only thing you can do is start again, you know, and sometimes that is the, the best economic approach. 
um, to, I mean, and this is, this is really, um, I think this, uh, this is actually the, the, the hard bit, is for that business case, how do you understand what the existing thing looks like to the point, you know, it's a bit like archaeology. My colleague Ian Cartwright talks about software archaeology. You know, you have to go digging through these things to, to really understand what the economic benefits of strangling versus starting again, you know, what they are. Um, and that, those, you know, that, those, aren't, that, those are quite hard things to, to understand, right? Yeah. We've talked about APIs uh, a few times now. We may, may mention on them. Um, REST is not the uh, only option for integrating microservices. There's a, there's a bit of a, you know, a, uh, gRPC is in favour at the moment for implementation of uh, microservices for performance and other reasons. In that uh, debate of gRPC versus REST, uh, on what basis should a developer choose one over the other? Is, we're almost into Vim versus Emacs here, right? So Yeah. Yeah, because I'm in like old man shacks at cloud territory. Because I, I've, 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 I mean, it's quite hard for me to talk about this without describing. Well, it's quite hard for me to talk about it in general because you know it makes me makes me upset. But it's quite hard to talk about it. Um, We've hit a sensitive point. <laughs> yeah, without me, I mean, I, I still think XML is a thing, right? Um, without you know, without talking a bit about my history and actually the sort of history of integration over the years, really. So, you know, because because really, what, what, when when REST became really popular, it was in it was as a reaction in the sense of it was a reaction to things, you know, to where to the, in certainly in enterprise integration, um, and in, you know, internally inside big organisations, you probably even remember this if you're old enough, you know. It, we went from the sort of the the orms, the sort of corbers, and the sort of you know the, the sort of distributed object model type um, uh, into into process into application communication. We then moved to sort of this you know the web services style of integration using the WS Death Star um, you know specifications and stack. And incidentally, there was there was a, there was a there was an ontology to describe all the specifications for, for the WS for the web service specification. I mean, anytime you actually need a specification of the specification, like of the specification, it's just, it, that's, you know you've gone too far with that, right? It's too complex. Um, but, you know, you have, so you had the web, well, you had the web services stack and originally it was the web, web services were, you know, SOAP RPC. So you'd have remote, SOAP remote procedure calling where you'd essentially, uh, you'd basically, um, you know, invoke a method on another, service on another server um by um well basically by by passing it some 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 xml and it was really awful i mean and like the the, the coupling that, that that led to it was almost impossible to make any change to your service without requiring all the other things that were talking that were talking to it uh, to actually change as well, and that that became that was a real issue, certainly you know, for limiting the rate of change that we that in, in in organizations uh, in in teams, between teams in particular. Then we moved to document oriented web services, which were kind of better, right? Because you're passing documents around rather than um, and with documents you can do things like change the order of of fields in a document without necessarily it breaking the other side. Whereas with RPC, you know, if you change the order of um, you change the order of, of, of um, parameters in a method call, it's going to break the other thing, right? So you have to be really, really careful about, how, how, about making changes. You can add stuff without, in documents, you can add things without breaking other stuff, um, without breaking stuff downstream and things like that. So you can evolve your services much more freely with document-oriented web services. But then the natural evolution came to rest, right? So for, for, for integration inside organizations. 
Because with REST, you've not only got the, the, the attributes of document-oriented integration, where you can add fields, you can rename by adding a new one with a new name, you can change the order of things, you're not fragile in that sense. So you get less coupling to the, you know, to, to, to the implementation, if you like, the representation, but you also get decoupling of the behavior as well. Because with, you know, with, with, with hypermedia driving application state, you, know, you can include links which allows you as the service provider uh, by providing links to guide what your consumers are doing. So you provide this additional level of decoupling, which is why a lot of people move to REST, especially um, you know, in ThoughtWorks, it was a really big thing. Hypermedia-driven applications were a really big thing. And then this idea of things like domain application protocols. So using things like Atom to cons or Atom Pub, uh, which became quite popular, to constrain how services would interact. You know, so you've got to, you don't even have to think about it. Oh, it's Atom, it's Atom Pub. I can create, I can edit, I can, you know, I can delete, I can add new collections, I can add entries, I can add content. If you model your domain in that way, then you know, you just know how things are working. Then of course Google, because Google are, you know, hey, gRPC. No, a, it's not RPC for a start, right? So it's one, of, it's one of these really badly named things, and there are lots of them. ThoughtWorks is particularly good at badly naming things as well, so I'm not going to um, worry too much about about Google's naming schemes. Um, but but also, I mean, if you think about what 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 problem is Google solving? You know, any any particular time that you're that that one of your fronting web servers is. They, you know, I believe this is still the case, but when you type in, say, you know, you type something into your search term, every time you type a character, it's firing up like thousands of requests off to the backend infrastructure. Right? And then it's working out, depending on which ones come back fastest, um, what it's going to show you in, in, in the results kind of thing. Um, if you're doing that for millions of people all day, every day, Maybe there's a use case for using a binary protocol that's a bit faster than than, than just playing bits, you know, than, than, than XML or JSON over the wire. Um, I think I think there is a use case there, right? If you're Google and you've got the problems that Google has, or if you're Facebook and you've got the problems that Facebook has, it's perfectly reasonable to do things like come up with new storage mechanisms, like Cassandra. It's perfectly perfectly reasonable to come up come all big table. It, or it's perfectly reasonable to come up with new new protocols like things like gRPC or even you know HTTP. Uh, what's the new one? There's an even newer version of HTTP that they're that they're, they're sort of building, um, which I can't remember the name of. It's, it escapes me. But you know that that's that's completely reasonable. Now, if I'm you know if I'm if I'm if I'm Kate, I'm sitting in in my um, in my team in my bank, and I've got to talk. You know, I've got to integrate with another team across the way. That's um, that's that's. That's I don't know using my services to do, um, you know, to to move. I don't know if it's investment banking. They're using my service in order to see what prices are are are, are for particular stocks and shares for particular equity products. Do I need to use gRPC then? Well, probably not. I mean, the human human eye can't take more than like an update every couple of seconds, right? Or a second or so. You don't want your stock tickets flickering. Like with, with you know every 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 ten milliseconds, um, really you know probably it's okay to use something that's going to give you some additional benefits over gRPC, which are things like you know visibility and also um, so uh, just transparency, but also this this additional layer of decoupling that allows you to change stuff or and, and your client to change stuff without breaking necessarily. I mean there are other cases. I mean. You know, you probably wouldn't use REST if you're doing low latency stuff. If you're housing your server in 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 you know in the exchange itself, uh, you would probably do something else. In, 
that you'd probably be writing C++ and you'd probably be doing um, very, very low level stuff over the wire. So, uh, but you know, in the, in the majority of cases, I don't see that, that, that the benefits of gRPC outweigh some of the cost of gRPC, which is um, you, you lose a lot of the sort of transparency and things that you have with HTTP. Saying that, and, and rest on top of HTTP, Saying that, of course, things have changed. You know, we're talking these days about things like primitiveless enterprise, and um, you know, about about you know, security being um, being everywhere essentially. So, you know, we, we don't just want you know uh, to terminate TLS at a firewall when you come into an organization. We should be using TLS across every single one of our services. You know, which which means that you can't then snoop on 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 on, on HTTP requests and just just see the plain text. You need to. Um, build tools that allow you to do that sort of stuff to get the same level of transparency. But I think I, I still think you get a lot from REST. Saying that, that again, I'm on. I'm pretty sure I've lost this one. So, <laughs> in the same way, that Jason is Jason is not an information exchange medium thing. We're seeing a lot, I guess, of gRPC in like an east-west architecture. So. That way you have a bunch of microservices within an app, you know, a contained application. Like you said, it might be services behind an existing front-facing API. And those services need to communicate very, very quickly because there's dependencies on each other in order to be able to return a, a result set to the front-facing API. But in that north-south kind of dependency, maybe a RESTful interface is more practical and easier to maintain has advantages itself. And that's, you know, David, I think that comes back to what I was saying about the different styles of microservice architecture, right? I mean, like if your requirements, like inside your inside your capability where you've got a number of services interacting, if the requirements stand are, are that, that 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 interaction needs to be super, super low latency, that seems like a reasonable, it seems like a reasonable design, you know, decision to go with something like gRPC. You know, but you know, do you really need to be calling it? Is 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 thirty milliseconds okay? Because if it is, then you're probably fine to use to use REST even then. Um, and if you've also got incredibly chatty services like that, there might be a question to be asked about why you've got so many things constantly low latency going across um, between them. But you know, as you say, it is a it is a um, it is you know, if you have a reasonable reason to use it, absolutely use the right tool for the job. That's actually what microservices was all about. I and mean, one of the reasons um, it was so exciting is you get to use the right tool for the job. You get to make different decisions depending on where you are. You get to make different decisions about security, you know, depending on where you are. This is one of the reasons why the UK government has sort of adopted, or several departments have adopted the start, because um, you know, you, you don't have to secure every part of your system to the lowest or the highest common denominator of security, if you like. You can have you know, you can have inside and outside the perimeter style architectures, which is really, really useful from the perspective of of, of change. So, um, so yeah, I totally agree, David. You know, if you have that circumstance, you know, that's a perfectly reasonable design choice. But you get to make those decisions, which I think is the fun thing. And, and public cloud providers are sometimes making this choice uh, a bit easier, or in some some cases, completely abstracting the choice, right? So, you know, they're, they're providing these managed services, be it, be it container orchestration or service meshes, um, that really, you know, do a lot of this grunt work for you. And so in some cases, you may even be, you don't really care in terms of the, you know, what protocol it's using for your microservices to communicate so long as it works. Uh, and, and unless you, you, unless latency and those sort of issues are of a major concern. 
as an architectural choice, then maybe you do care. But in terms, it may not necessarily place an, an extra overhead or burden because the public cloud providers are abstracting some of this and managing it for you, right? Yeah, which is awesome. As long as they're making the right decisions themselves, which you know, yeah. <laughs> the face of it, you hope. Um, but you know, it, uh, again, one of the things I care about, I care about, I care about that. You know, I want to be able to make changes to the thing I've got without having to a notify other people if possible, or b yeah. have other people notify me when you know that I need to make a change because they've made a change. The thing I've got, I want to be in control of that change cycle. You know, um, and if if the infrastructure provided by by the cloud providers, you know, allows me to stay to remain in control which it for the large part does then because they because they're operating at the right level of abstraction they're operating at the level of abstraction of like transports and things like this right sqs sns they don't care what you put in it you know um i still get to decide what 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 the, what the stuff is stuff is i put in in you know in i push into these services um and that's that's that means that i i mean i'm still in control um from the, from the perspective of change and that's i think the important thing because that's the thing that limits that limits throughput. I mean, what you know, fundamentally, we're, we're building software is about solving problems. You know, I say I would say business in quotes, but it's not necessarily business. It's not necessarily about making money. It could be about you know um, modeling for the pandemic, which we're, which we're doing with one of the universities in India. You know, we're building um, a Rust based Asian um, ABM agent based model um, to to do to do a pandemic modeling. You know, so, but that's business in this sense in the inverted commas. The reason you're doing it is to solve a problem, whether that's as I say this you know Rust the agent based model stuff, whether it's you know, trading, whether it's you know selling an insurance policy or or, or um, you know um, online deliveries of of coats and. In order to do that, you need to have a, a particular type. You, know, you need to have an, as much throughput from your teams in order to solve those problems as you can. So, what what I'm interested in is how do you maximize the throughput back to agile again, right? Which is all about you know, limiting work in progress and you know, small batch sizes and fast feedback. And what architectural decisions or designs are there that help maximize throughput uh, or hinder? And and one of the things that really hinders is 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 coupling, you know. Me making a, a a change means someone else has to make a change. Them making a change means I have to make a change. And anything we can do and tools that we can use to minimise the coupling between between teams, um, I think is 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 important. It's why it's why consumer driven contracts were such an important idea. Um, you know, it, because back to the fast feedback bit of agile. If you can find out that you're going to make a breaking change in your build to someone else's software, then you can fix it there there and there. You know, if you find out when they start phoning you further down the line, you've got much less context about the change because it's been it's 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 longer. You've then got to roll it back from production or roll forward. You end up with you know um, essentially essentially hit on throughput or hit on lead time for requirements coming behind that that change. So you know, consumer driven contracts would say you know if you you give me the the, the you, know, you you tell me how you're going to use my service. And I'll honor that contract by running it, executing it in my build you know, as a test, you know, the behavior that you want. And if I break that behavior, then we can have a conversation, but it's a managed conversation as opposed to me, me breaking the behavior um, and the other person um, having to deal with it or phone up in an irate manner. Sometimes, of course, that's the only way you can deal with, deal with stuff. I was at a, a bank once where we were turning off a, an old version of a service to migrate to a new one, and we didn't. We had no idea who was who was using it. 
Apart, we, we knew two teams were using it, but we had no idea who else because there were more requests than just those two teams. Um, so the only way to deal with it was to turn it off and then wait for the phones to ring, which they did quite, quite quickly, <laughs> to be honest. Look, James, several, several years ago, you had pioneering work on microservices and, and you've had the benefit of watching this whole ecosystem evolve and thrive. You're now looking to the future and predicting the next big thing or the next evolution or what, where, where are we at? What's next? So, if, I was, if I was going to be a bit glib, I'd say database triggers in the cloud seem quite, big, quite a big deal at the moment, which is uh, Stefan's uh, description of... Um, of, of serverless, right? So, um, and lambdas and things. I mean, I, I, I think that's a really interesting idea. So, uh, a couple of years ago now, I was, I was I sort of looked into it too much in the last year or so, but I was follow, following a lot of the research on um, not, not, on not just containers, but then um, uh, unikernels, which is essentially, if you've come across that, what uh, come across unikernels, um, it's almost like yeah, I used to joke that Docker is 30% of the way to, to a unikernel. But you're like, where's your, a unikernel is rather than build an application, you actually build an OS that ex and your application into the OS, but you only build exactly what you need for your applications. If you don't need UDP, you don't build that part of the stack in that networking stack. If you only need, yeah, right. you know, do you know what I mean? So you, you really limit. And it's in terms of security, it's the holy grail because you're minimizing the attack surface. You know, um, you know, it's, there's no option to forget to turn off. You know, um, the the fact that you know port eighty is open. You just don't. You don't. You don't. It's, it's not there in the first place. Not there. Not there in the first place. Yeah. You know, and, but also there's interesting stuff around formal formal proofs and then formally checking. Because if you use if you use compilers that are themselves formally proven, then you can build unikernels that are again you know, formally proven to be correct, if you like, or secure. And that's really exciting, I think, from, from, from the perspective of building secure software. So I think that, that's one thing in terms of, you know, in terms of where I think that infrastructure, where things like lambdas are going or, or even serverless. I am concerned about serverless in the sense that, um, it actually, I mean, Stefan was quite right. And he does talk to my concerns around what I see potentially the problems with serverless in the future, which is this unmanaged complexity that you get in databases. If you've ever looked at, you know, database from sort of, you know, 2001 or, you know, a big Oracle or big SQL Server database when everyone was going, ah, oh, all the logic is stored procedures. And if, you, if, you've, if you've tried to untangle any of that sort of stuff, where this is calling that, which is calling that, which is calling this, which is calling that, it's really, really, really hard. I mean, I remember one client where they had, you know, you, see, you would call, you would, you'd invoke a stored procedure, you'd pass it a, an, an index into a table which had the stored procedure name that you wanted to call. So you'd like call yeah. it with like you know, ID 15. And then the stored procedure you were calling would, would, would look at look in the table. Ah, it, that means that, you know, the store user or something. So then it would, by reflection, invoke the store user store procedure, passing the parameter. What, what on earth were people thinking, you know? You, yeah. you created your own pointer system within 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 the database. It's just kind of crazy. Um, but but I do wonder about that. I do wonder whether, or worry slightly, that we're going to get into that position with serverless with this. And so I think that, I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of evolution to come there um, with that, so with, with using functions as a service. Um, I think the other thing, another interesting thing that I've been talking a lot with Keith Morris about, who's someone else you might want to consider for a podcast because he's very much in the infrastructure space. Um, he's, he's awesome. Um, 
is 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 this idea at the moment that um of 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 infrastructure as code and what that's going to look like in the future um because you know, we've started to get new things on the scene like plami and, and cdk which are much more i'll write code code and then something's generated at the back of it um but is that is that the end is that is that where, where the industry's going as a whole or is this just a stopping you know stepping stone to something else in the same way that i think docker and and and, and functions as a service is probably a stepping stone to something like unicables in the future um so yeah so those are those are those are two things that i, th I think are quite are quite interesting there's also a bunch of stuff around things like ethics in machine learning i mean thought which we get exposed to a lot of interesting ideas and um you know we have <laughs> there's a bunch of stuff fizzing if you can you know, if you if, if you uh if you like so yeah. speaking of data scientists the other day and he, he was talking about this ethics in ethical machine learning or ai he said david it's an oxymoron the whole point of, of machine learning is to define an outcome to just to, to predict an outcome so you know why do you want to create boundaries around what the outcome it wants to predict and he just he just he, he, he was uh challenged by the whole concept of ethical machine learning yeah well i mean that's the thing isn't it it's, it, it's it, also i mean in in the sense well that, that's true in the sense but in the sense that it, unless you're very careful about the data set you use then you know if you have a perfect data set entirely representative data set then mm -hmm. then potentially that yes that's that's kind of all fine the problem is none of them are you know we don't have these representative data sets this is in, this is one one side of things um so it's it's not the case that you're getting the right outcome you're getting the wrong outcome you can't get the right it's like you know it's like if you um you only measure um you know, if in if if in in CERN or whatever, um, you only decided to you threw away ninety five percent of the results and then said, "Oh, we can't find this," or oh, the, 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 "This is this is this." Essentially, it's automated confirmation bias to describe it, um, which is you know, which is not a great that's not a great thing. If you've got more, if you've got all the data available, then, then that's then that's fantastic. Um, if you don't, I think there's real issues. James, I feel like we're just getting started, but yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we have well and truly run out of time. How can the listeners uh, learn and follow you? How, how can they? Uh, what are your channels that they should be following? So I very infrequently update my blog at uh, bovon.org. I'm also there's also a, quite a few videos on YouTube now of me me talking about microservices over the years. I'm on Twitter at Boise B O I C Y. And if you want to get hold of me, please email jalewis at thoughtworks.com. I'm always interested in talking about this stuff and learning more about what other people are doing. So thank you very much. And thanks, uh, Kevin and That's Dave, for inviting me. It's been really great. Absolutely our pleasure. That's very generous of you to offer all those uh, points of contact. Uh, we would love to have you back on the program one uh, soon and uh, continue these talks. I think there is so much we could dive into. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day in London. Thank you. I could hear the rain and wind howling outside the shed, so I might delay getting a new cup of coffee. But thanks very much, and I'll, I'll sign out now. All right, that's a wrap for this edition of Coding Over Cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this podcast episode? Have you started utilizing microservices within your organization? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there because we listen. 
Just look for Toro Cloud. Again, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been James Lewis, David Brown, and Kevin Montalvo at your service for coding over cocktails. Cheers! <laughs>